welcome to the Delling Pod with me, James Delling And I know I always say I'm excited about this week's special guest, but I really am in Ferrero Rocher ambassador mode. I am spoiling you with the treats. I've got Ivor Cummings on the on the podcast. Hello, Ivor. Hello, James. Great to be here. An honor. It's no, it's an listen, the honor is all mine. Um, people who don't well, some people will be really excited and jumping up and down on their chairs or however they watch um, my, my podcast or whether they're just jogging along listening to it. Other people will say, like, Ivor who? Um, you you have a podcast as the fat emperor, and already I can see one thing you've got way over me. You have quality, you have you've got your logo in the background with a kind of trendy wall of some kind, I don't know, symbolizing strength or, <laughs> or <laughs> urban cohesion. Co- cohesion. And you've got this fancy mic sticking out. Uh, I mean, I've got mine, but uh, yours looks fancier than mine. And how long have you been doing this for, the podcasting? Whoa, it was, uh, I think, March 19, really, where, where I really kicked off. So not that long. But pretty quickly, I got good gear because dietdoctor.com, the guys, the sound audio guys I worked with there, I just asked them, what do I need that's the best? So it's a Procaster mic and a Zoom H5 recorder, a couple of hundred pounds each. And that's the sound. And then the video is expensive. It's a Canon EOS R with a macro lens and it goes through a a connector to allow it to be my webcam. But obviously, it's quite a good camera. Oh, okay. No, I don't mind. Look, I don't mind throwing money at things if I thought it was going to make a material difference to the quality of my podcast. I think the real gap um, with me will be the technology. For example, I mean, I, I can't edit. I have people who help me out, but I don't know how much, how hard it is to do. Um, but anyway, look, I'm really, really glad that um, to have you on, on the show. And um, I... I've just been watching, I mean, I've just been watching some pornography on the internet. And by pornography, I mean, your incredible, <laughs> your incredible video you made, right? Well, you've got a video, whatever, your, your thing that was big on Twitter for a long period, the one where you, you told it like it was about the state of coronavirus. For example, mm. the Gompertz curve, which in Western countries, flus uh, the flu or coronavirus that's how they operate isn't it that's how they roll they go like this and then absolutely they these respiratory viruses have their own dynamics and they follow the curve and whether you do a big lockdown or a small lockdown or a medium lockdown the curve's pretty much the same and some people would argue well the curve was lower in severity so same shape But the reality is we have many analyses now that show that the curve was turning before the lockdown really impacted many countries. So lockdown has been overrated to an incredible degree. But the other thing is a hard lockdown should at least stretch out the curve. If it was really person-to-person transmission, you should get a big long curve. Guess what? That doesn't happen. The curve starts and ends around the same time for certain regions. So there's so much data now around lockdowns not really being effective and causing huge societal damage and and costs that uh, it's just amazing we're still talking about them. But yeah, I guess China just led such a leading light for Europe. China was such an incredible inspiration for us uh, because it looks like lockdowns basically came from looking at China. I want to go into your theories, conspiracy or otherwise, about why this craziness is happening a bit a bit later on. And I hope you've got some, because uh, I'm just, I, I, normally I've got an explanation for everything, but on this occasion, I'm thinking, what this, if you put this stuff in a dystopian novel, people would be going, ah, oh, yeah, there's flaws in that. And no one would believe this shit. You know, no, no reputable government would, would, would behave like this. It would be madness. But, but first of all, um, that video, the porn video I referred to, just because I, I, I loved it so much. Um, and hearing you in your, in your measured, lovely Irish accent, talking in a, you know, I mean, if I was doing it, I'd be like, I'd be sounding like Hitler because I get excited about things and I'd be saying, this is disgusting. How could it happen? But you're, you've honestly got one of those brains 
am I right that you're good at statistics and you're good at looking at charts and you're, you're technically minded, you understand science? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, from very young age. And when I came out of school, I was top in mathematics and in English, even though I'm Irish. So the both sides of the brain kind of work reasonably well. Uh, it's not my credit. I'm lucky. So there you go. But yeah, I went straight into engineering. It was a no brainer. I used to build my own bicycles when I was a kid. Everything in the world of technology fascinated me. Uh, it's been my whole life and I spent 30 years then in complex problem solving. So it's really at the, the epicenter of where things get really tricky, where most engineers actually often fail uh, when you have multi-factor complex interacting, highly ambiguous problems uh, that are just really tough, you know, to resolve quickly. And you can lose millions of dollars if you don't resolve them quickly. So I was very successful in my career because I found that I could go in and solve problems. And as the decades passed, I used more and more actual tools of problem solving, statistical, logical, comparative analyses. Uh, so I built up all my innate talent, uh, my increasing experience, and bringing in then skills and tools. So when I hit the health scene in 2012 to kind of root cause all the problems that cause chronic disease, and then in Corona, you know, it's all just, second nature really at this stage it's a shame actually that, that that we've got so much to talk about and we're not going to cram it all into one episode because i'd love to talk to you about the health side of things as well about uh diseases of civilization you know the 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 the, the, the chronic health problems crohn's disease and uh i mean i actually think lyme lyme's disease is actually a manifestation of that i think people obsess about the tick bite and i think it's nothing of the kind i think it's it's another form of me actually uh, but we, we can talk about that on another occasion i just think that yeah and I, I want to talk to you about keto as well i mean you're, you're a big keto advocate aren't you am i right yeah, actually, we, myself and Dr. Jeffrey Gerber uh, from Denver wrote our book, Eat Rich, Live Long, uh, two years ago now. But it's low-carb and keto. And I'm not a real hardcore pushing keto person. Uh, I'd say low-carb, you know, minimal ultra-processed food and eat real foods like meat, fish, eggs, you know, some vegetables. Uh, just a, a healthy low-carb for most people is ideal. And then people who have type 2 diabetes, entrenched insulin resistance problems, uh, and more difficult challenges uh, it can often be better to push towards keto for many people. But we wrote the whole book on it anyway. I I, I feel that that um yeah we definitely should do another podcast on on that. But can I ask you a very quick question? One of my I like the idea of 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 low carb keto whatever diets. But what about when I go on holiday to Italy? I mean, how does one deal with Italy and not eat pasta and pizza? I mean. It would ruin everything, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's a, it's a tough nut to crack. Yeah, the Italians, funny enough, 50 years ago, their pasta was made with a lot of egg protein, which makes the kind of wheat and carbohydrate not so bad to digest. Uh, so it's changed. And they used to have small little bowls of pasta as a starter and a side. And now you have huge bowls of pasta with a little bit of meat juice. So things have changed a lot, but pizza's gorgeous. But they used to have really thin wood-fired base pizzas and loads of toppings. So as a percentage carb with a very thin base, traditional, uh, it wouldn't actually be that bad. And they are gorgeous. I, I, <laughs> pizza, it's just so good. <laughs> Although I have to say, I am slightly disappointed with that argument, I, uh, that answer. I was hoping you were going to say, no. Italy's fine. When you go to Italy, their their pasta is actually is it is low carb. It may look high carb, but it's in fact really good for you. And you can eat it on a, as part of a balanced keto diet. But you didn't say that. Well, yeah, and you don't. No, no, I can't. I can't. I can't lie. That's what I'm like. Superman. I can't lie. No, but <laughs> not quite. I've been a manager of people for 15 years, so yeah, I can, I can twist the truth, but I never twist the technical truth. That's a principle of mine. Uh, it offends me when the technical truth is twisted uh, for various ends, and that's why this corona thing drove me crazy for six months. Uh, but yeah, there's alternatives. You can use cauliflower rice, and you can make bases of pizza using all almond flour. So there's all these recipes on the web where you can have an alternative, or you can decide, I'm in Italy on holidays, and you know what? Screw it. I'm not advising that. 
that would be my my preferred solution yeah <laughs> i actually interesting what you were saying there about how you can't tell a lie because this is my my regular listeners may may know this about me that i have a a particular problem i'm i'm virtually incapable of well i can't lie convincingly uh and and because of that i've generally told the truth even when it's got me into an awful lot of trouble and I suspect mm. that this is, ha- this is the case with quite a lot of us, the, the, the people who've emerged during this coronavirus madness, that the, the people who speak out tend to be people who are congenitally incapable of, of, of following a, a mendacious narrative. Is that, would, you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think in general, what I've seen, like Professor Michael Levitt, the Nobel laureate who's spoken out, huge bravery, and he got huge abuse. I met him in London there to film him with a film crew a few weeks ago. Uh, lovely man. And Professor Bida Stadler, I went to Switzerland and interviewed him, the vaccine pope of Europe, the top immunologist professor. And he's speaking out and getting abuse. But again, we talked about recipes, about children, grandchildren, philosophy, lovely person, so honest. So I think, yeah, I'm seeing a huge amount of that in the people who are stepping up and calling this. Um, They're decent, honest, upright people. And then the people who are pushing the hysteria, I would say very shady, often with lots of, you know, the saw, I think Valance, isn't it? Big pharma backgrounds and 600,000 quids worth of of investments Uh, in, in, is it Glaxo, I think? One of the companies manufacturing. Absolutely. But I mean, conflicts of interest don't mean that you're biasing the narrative. but equally, you can't ignore them. But also a lot of Twitter doctors who fight back and say, we're all going to die and you're being irresponsible, sharing facts and data. It could kill people. Um, those ones tend to be very, they're a certain type, you know, they're, and they're not the type we were just talking about. And a lot of them are connected as well to grants from pharma. Then the big organizations driving this, the WHO, the World Economic Forum has said that this is a big opportunity for the great reset to bring in a managed control world these guys these guys are low on empathy and and they're high on kind of probably avarice and uh you know deceit these are corporate type you you know the type <laughs> hancock is is one of them grant grant shaps is another you've got these these in fact one of the depressing things is is the the kind of people that you knew at school who were just conventional, uh, uh, career safe, um, really not going to distinguish themselves in life in any way. And suddenly these are the guys in charge. I mean, I was at school with Chris Whitty. No, I mean, I didn't know, know Whitty at all. I mean, apart from the fact he was called Whitty. I mean, that was the only thing one knew about him. He was not, he was not one of the talents that you were gonna see in the future. And yet here he is effectively dictating the the policy of the entire United Kingdom right now, him and him and Patrick Valance. Uh, it's like we're being ruled by the grey men. And again, we should come to that, come to that later on. First of all, you've been, <sighs> that video I mentioned, um, if people just, just where, where can they find it? If they, what, 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 what Google search should they do to, in order to get your, your killer, your killer video? Yeah, okay. Well, I always I say Google Ivor Cummins because you Google my name, you get my YouTube and, and website all in the first page. And so it's easiest. And just go to the YouTube. And if people look at the videos on YouTube, I think you click videos. It's around three videos back. It's dated the 8th of September. So there you go. 36 minutes. Uh, just my dulcet tones and pure data, all reference to government and university, uh, you know, sources. And I just go through all the data and people, it, it amazes me that people just don't have any grasp whatsoever of just basic data and logic because they basically got plugged into the media and the media is just a fire hose of, of kind of propaganda. I mean, your own UK Dr. John Lee, professor of pathology, he's been writing in The Spectator since March. He was my one ray of light at the start when I realized they were ruining everything for no benefit. And Dr. Lee was talking about this. 
So I interviewed him and um, basically, you know, there are people in the UK who are decent, upstanding, forward-looking, thinking of the next generation, good people who are highly technical, who've worked this out. And they have said that the media is essentially propaganda because Dr. Lee said propaganda is when the media keep repeating a story we already know and reinforcing it all the time. And that's what they've been doing since March. Investigative journalism is when you challenge a story and want to relook at all the data and uh, make sure there isn't another uh, way of telling the story. That's investi that investigative journalism is basically gone since March 2020, and it's creeping back now. You're seeing the odd article popping up here and there, kind of going, uh, hold on a second. <laughs> But you know, Ivor, I just quibble, quibble on one, one thing. It's not even investigative journalism we're talking about here. It's just basic journalism. It's journalism 101. And we're not even seeing that at the moment. People are not, people are not listening to... If I were a journalist now on, say, I, I started out my career on the Daily Telegraph. So it was, I was on the news pages and I was doing the, doing the coronavirus beat. I'd be looking around and there is so much low hanging fruit. There are so many experts. Now, maybe not at the beginning when we were a bit more confused, but now there's so many good stories about experts coming up with really interesting information to show that the, the reaction to, be, to coronavirus has been completely overblown. It's not anything to worry about now that the, the pandemic died ages ago. It's just in its, in its death throes. And yet these stories are not being told. That's amazing. Just, but take me through your greatest hits. Just, just say, I, say I'm a great believer in, imagine for a moment that I really believe that I'm going to die of coronavirus and that we should be doing more, that we should be wearing masks and we should be locking down again, that there's going to be a second wave. Just take me through the talking points about why this is bollocks. Okay. Well, one to think about is what's the excess mortality in Europe uh, there's countries in Euromomo, a uh, database for mortality. It's around 360 million people tracked. And we have the last many years. And they've done reports, and, and I've taken the data from them. And basically, 2018 was a bad flu. There were some newspaper articles in UK where hospitals were kind of overrun. People don't remember that now. 2018 and 360 million people, there were around 140,000 excess mortality in the respiratory season, the flu season. And that's not abnormal. Some years it's 100K, 2015 was maybe closer to 200K. But that's the kind of numbers. It's a tiny percentage of the population, but they're the numbers. This year, be around 185. So 185 this year versus 140,000 in 18. No one did anything in 18. 15 was worse again. And 2000, I think, was quite high, over 200,000. Uh, that was the millennium year. It was a really bad flu year. Um, worse than this one. But it was just spread out over four or five months. Whereas Corona happened very a short space of time, which made it very visible. So there's a fact. Another fact. Uh, the or the grocery workers during the peak of the epidemic in Ireland and in America, millions of grocery workers worked eight hours a day, no masks, completely not locked down, with the great unwashed flowing in all day long, all the stores. Right? They were so exposed, they obviously got dead like no tomorrow. No, there was no real extra infection signal and no extra mortality signal. Right. So anyone who's all terrified, and this is back in the epidemic when it really was going on. And the grocery workers who were the opposite of lockdown had no extra signal of mortality or infection. And even healthcare workers in a report with the ONS English database, generally speaking, healthcare workers were not really much higher, you know, and that included ambulance drivers and all kinds of guys. And that was data from before when the masks were coming in as a big thing. Uh, however, care home workers had higher mortality and uh, security guards had very high mortality, right? And taxi drivers. But that's more to do with your metabolic health and your socioeconomic status, right? But, you know, there's so many points of logic. We have five analyses now that show that the lockdowns 
essentially in Europe happened generally after the peak was reached and really didn't change the overall impact. But people all want to go around locking down. Yeah. Ireland all summer for four... Hmm? Because it just feels, it, it feels like the right thing to do. It sort of makes intuitive sense, doesn't it? That if you shut people in their houses, the nasty disease cannot leave the home. And so no one, no one will get infected in the disease. Yeah, but they, they don't realize Professor Sinatra Gupta from Oxford was correct. She was saying back in March, April, this is all over the place. And the thing is, we know now the first UK known man to die was in December he died. This was in Europe in November. They have it in the sewage in Spain in November. It's a high circulation virus. We've all been told that endlessly. And from November up until March, it was allowed to travel with no real controls whatsoever. So the thing is, it got all over the place. So it was there before we could do anything about it. But by the time we, we even thought about doing something, it was way too late. Uh, essentially, uh, sorry, the screen went blank there. Uh, but yeah, essentially, and if you read Hope Simpson, the British doctor who studied influenza for 50 years, and he wrote a book, The Transmission of Influenza, um, there's lots of data he puts together about a dormancy and endemic nature, that the virus comes, it can fill out and then it can trigger seasonally. So these people who have a perception that, oh, you're hiding yourself away, it's not going to spread. You know, it was all over the place by March, but no one was really testing. Yeah. And then the seasonal trigger occurred. So it was lurking all over the place, just waiting to get people. Well, I'd say, yeah, um, in Brazil, it has been proven in Brazil, it was in the sewage water in community circulation, November 2019, same as Europe. But while Europe triggered seasonally, the virome triggered in kind of March, back down again. In Brazil, we got the big hump out in uh, May, June, July. But they, they all had the virus in the sewage back in November. So, the, you know, the virome is very complex and pervasive. And these simplistic human ideas that will just lock people down. Cuomo in New York came out with astonishment after they did a lockdown in New York and they found out weeks later that 66% of the new cases were people who were locked down at home and they couldn't understand it. <laughs> but lockdowns don't really work unless you lock down a country when there's hardly any virus and you get in so early and lock down a big geographic area like maybe an island and you truly keep it out. But once it's in and circulating for months, the lockdowns just can't keep up with it. You just get the natural curves. What, so what are the countries that have, that have emerged um, as shining examples of how to deal with this problem? I mean, Sweden, obviously. Um, and Sweden has, Sweden has taken so much stick. And maybe you can help me out on this one. Whenever I cite, cite Sweden to a, to a true believer in the coronavirus monster, they always say, Oh, yes, but the neighboring Nordic countries had a lower death rate. And uh, that's the, there, there seems to be a certain series of set excuses to explain why, even though Sweden looks good on paper, in fact, in reality, it is just disastrous. Well, that's back again, exactly, James, to propaganda, because that's not science, it's propaganda. So I'll throw out a couple of things. One is that the Nordics and Sweden, when they took their actions, you could say Nordics locked down, Sweden obviously didn't, a completely different approach. At that stage, whatever you did would affect the death rate around three and a half weeks later. Because obviously, if you stop infections now, the deaths you've stopped will, will begin to show up three and a half weeks later because of latency. Uh, but the reality was Sweden was rising up in death rate way before that three weeks passed. So Sweden was already destined, right, to have a much higher rate than the others, independent of the lockdown measures. So that's just a reality. Uh, the other thing is that there's now a paper published, 16 reasons why Sweden has a higher death rate than the Nordics. That's the actual title. It's published. And the first one they put up is mine. My favorite one is prior flu season severity. So it looks like that one of the big, yeah, the biggest determinants of a country's actual impact on mortality is how severe the prior flu seasons were. So Sweden had a much lower mortality of elderly 
uh, than you would normally expect. And then they got a high peak of mortality. And it's very sad, but the reality is there are people who, who would have been taken in a prior year and they're still here, which is great. But when a tough virus like Corona, that's like a bad flu equivalent comes along, they're rapidly going to obviously be in, in the firing line. So it's, it's sad, but that's reality. And we see across 17 or 18 countries, nearly always the same pattern. If the mortality in the past year and a half, two years is kind of normal, they get a low hump for Corona. And if they've got kind of a trough in their mortality, lower than you would expect, below significantly below then they get a peak and that's just one of the 16 uh, the 16th is lockdown and this team said to be honest with all the other you know immigrant populations density with all the other factors lockdown doesn't really have anything left to offer and that's why there's multiple papers showing that yes you, you call it the dry tinder effect don't you the, the all those i'm avoiding the word because would you believe it's a word I took from someone else's published paper. It wasn't mine, but a lot of people get offended by it. Um, you know, so I'm sure you're not worried about that. Not my audience. My audience like it good right. and hard. And, um, no, they do. Oh. They like steel dildos, probably. <laughs> Steely Dan. Some, some iron in the glove. Yeah, exactly. They do. Uh, I, at least I, I, unless I've, I've grossly misunderstood my audience. Um, Yes. And tell me about Brazil versus Peru. Yeah. So there's endless examples of this, but I give Brazil Peru because Brazil, the president, very publicly said no lockdown. Now, some boroughs did their own lockdown because they were panicking, but that was the country's strategy. And it was, he was attacked like Sweden, uh, seriously attacked, obviously. Uh, and Peru then did military style lockdown. And I think they had the mandatory masks as well from way back. But the two of them, Peru has the worst deaths per million. And they both peaked and are humping seasonally out in uh, May, June, July, even though they had the virus in November, same as Europe. So I'm just going to make that point again, that the virome, it just doesn't respect lockdowns. It's kind of like, sorry, guys, I've been here for a billion years. You came from me. We have all come from the virome. Uh, we all species on earth have a hundred viruses associated with them there's even bacteria have hundreds of viruses they were here before us they don't respond to simple little uh intuitive things like lockdowns so it's true about mr burns from the simpsons that he's kept alive by all the different um viruses and things in perfect uh, <laughs> in perfect in harmony. Sense, yeah at least he came from them anyway, like we all did. But yeah, did you did you see The Simpsons where uh, it's an episode released on Twitter, a one minute clip where they actually are planning to release a virus like the government and all? Oh, no. But was it was it very prescient? I it, it's just so funny. I'll send you a link later. I think I, I put it on the hard drive. Someone sent it out. They actually go through it and it's literally a comedy carbon copy of what's happened here. Now, I'm not, this one wasn't released, but they went through all of the scaremongering, how they'd managed the media, and they went through how the Americans reacted, and the media, you know, came out with all the graphics of how it's spreading like every hour, and all of that was just prophetic. Oh dear, oh dear. Just briefly returning to um, Brazil. I mean, mm. I'm quite a fan of Bolsonaro. Um, is he going to emerge from this with with flying colours? Is are we eventually going to realise that that Brazil and a few others, Belarus, did the right thing, or do you think, or do you think they'll always try and arrange it? They being, I don't know, the the people in charge, they're always going to arrange it so we don't know the truth. Yeah, I'd say the latter. Unfortunately, James. I mean, this is it's just too big a a mess up to ever allowed to be perceived as what it was. It, 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 no way. So Sweden is a real problem because Belarus, you can say, oh, they're lying about their debt figures. I have people there, they're not. They did not get that overloaded. It's to do with population health, really. And they're just lucky and, and prior seasons. Uh, I'm not sure of the politics of Brazil, you know, but again, 
you know, this thing can't be admitted afterwards. And I think this is a terrible thing, but we've locked down and we've had masks all summer, which was crazy because we should have been allowing safe spread and more immunity to build up when there's no real impact in the summer in Europe. And now they've probably caused more impact to happen in the winter. So that's tragic. But the other thing is they're doubling down on lockdowns now coming into the winter. And I think part of it is an instinctive fear that if we don't lock down now and do measures and the winter goes ahead and is kind of normal, everyone's going to say, but hold on a minute, then seasonality is true, herd immunity is true, all the stuff that the other people were saying, it looks like it's all true. So they almost have to keep up the pretense now with all this pantomime that we're seeing in the UK and Ireland. It's crazy, but yeah. Yeah. It's a massive face-saving exercise by the political class. Part of it, and part of it is, ah, there are lots of organizations in the world that, that really, this is a huge opportunity, shall we say, and they're very influential. So there's a lot of vectors pushing it, but one of them is that instinctive, you know, realization, we'd better do a lot of fanfare. So if the winter turns out okay, we, we'll have done that and we can credit that. And the old one is the, the fable of, you know, the tiger horn that keeps away the tigers. And after a year or so of blowing the horn every night, a boy says, but there aren't any tigers. And of course they say, yeah, see how effective the horn is? You know, so they're... Uh, I want to get one of those tiger horns. They sound really good. Yeah. In fact... Well, the governments are all blowing them now. <laughs> there is actually a there is a Simpson episode again where where, where Lisa and, and Homer talks about talk about a similar thing. Do you remember that? Anyway, uh, um, okay. Now imagine that I'm one of those people who thinks that masks are really important and we should be wearing them more often. And we should be clamping down harder on people like me who refuse to wear them. Uh, what would you say to how would you how would you let them off their out of their delusion? Yeah, you attract a lot of flack when you say anything not supporting masks because they are a religion. So I'd say, well, Sweden have gone through all the studies like I have, and they've concluded, their top epidemiologists uh, have concluded the evidence is very thin. They were never recommended in WHO guidelines up until early 2020 uh, for a reason, because the science, many studies showed they had very little impact on viral transmission. Uh, there was a great study published in a dental organization 2016 and it went through with lots of references why it's a faith-based system even for dentists to wear them and it's been shown again and again they're ineffective but that study was taken down around a month or two ago and the dental organization said oh in line with the current environment we think it's not appropriate for this study published study to be here so they're actually censoring science so you can go through endless science that says for influenza transmission, uh, they're very ineffective. And that includes randomized control trials, associational studies. Recently, Denmark, or was it Finland? It was one of the, one of the guys anyway. Country said that masks might, one in, if 200,000 people wear a mask, you'll probably maybe stop one infection. And... You know, this is the kind of reality. It's just, it's a new religion and everyone has adopted it. Uh, if you are just allowed to wear them, you know, out of the good of your heart or you believe in them, that's fine. But we got fines and they've become law in the middle of the summer. And that's another thing. In the middle of a rising epidemic, which your ICUs filling up and your hospitals potentially overloading, like, like back in March, precautionary principle, uh, you could say, well, let's throw everything at it masks, some lockdowns, we'll do everything just in case. But why do we do it in the middle of July or even June? Why were masks all suddenly coming in as the godsend in the middle of the summer when Europe had already clearly finished with the epidemic and there wasn't going to be anything happening till next winter? Why would you wear masks then? So even on that single point, even if they had some function, why the hell would you bring them in the middle of a summer when nothing's happening? Because if you bring in something like that when nothing's happening, if you start blowing your tiger horn, when are you going to stop blowing it? So the, when are you going to stop? 
I mean, when that came out, that was one of the worst days I had because I had told my wife, who's also a, a first class honors engineering, so she obviously has all this data and gets it. Um, I told her in April, I said, look, the curves are turning. We knew that um, Italy turned before the lockdown really came into effect. If you look at the data, and we know China as well, Professor uh, Levitt did all the analysis. So this curve's going to turn down independent of their lockdown, and then they're going to have to drop it all and claim it worked. But what happened? In May, they weren't really dropping the measures. And in June, they weren't dropping the measures. And I was pulling my hair out, hair I don't have. And I, I said, they're actually just going to keep going with this, even though it's gone. And I thought, where's this going to end if that's what they're going to do? And then in July, they started talking about mandatory masks. And I just went, oh, Jesus. I, we are in the twilight zone now. Because they no longer need any science or any logic. They literally don't need anything anymore. They're just doing stuff. Yeah, I mean, what did you think when mandatory masks came in in the summer? I just thought, I, I went, I was on holiday in Greece a couple of weeks ago. And I was just, it was like 32 degrees every day, which is why I love Greece in summer. And and the the, the staff of restaurants were having to wear, wear these, you know, plastic visors and, and all sorts of nonsense and to queue for breakfast in the hotel. We couldn't choose our own buffet we had to have people you know pointing at the olives and and cheese and stuff and i just thought how how not obvious can it be i mean how how can you not know that that hot weather kills viruses that they don't you don't get flu in the summer you don't get coronavirus in the summer yeah i i agree that the, the world has lost it's like it's fallen off its axis. Some, the, the, the spheres are not in harmony anymore. I don't know what the... I feel like we're, yeah. we've entered the age of, of sort of medieval superstition again. That's, that's the word Professor Levitt has been using for many months. He said, the world has turned basically to medieval superstition and away from science. It's an age of unreason. Now, it's being driven by a lot of significant international bodies and a lot of players so it's not just happening it's not a complete stupidity on on everyone's part and politicians are benefiting from all of this because they've got a big issue that they're taking care of the people all believe it it's a great great to be a politician in those times uh, so there's loads of reasons why it's happening but what's happening is insane and and i've been saying this since may I, I supported the lockdown in principle because precautionary principle, even though I knew it wouldn't really do anything, it was too late. But I supported it because, you know, and even mask use, maybe. I talked about this on my show back in uh, April. You know, masks could help, blah, blah, blah. But by May then, everything had gone twilight zone, like we described. And this is a first in human history in ways. Unless you want to go back to the Salem witch trials and, you know... This century passed, nothing within a billion miles of this has happened. This is unprecedented. It's mad. Not just scientifically, but, but politically. I mean, I keep, I keep saying, and I don't know whether it's, I, I don't know what, how you'd measure this, but I think that this is the most draconian, anti-freedom, anti authoritarian government we've had in Britain probably since Cromwell's Commonwealth, you know, when, when they banned um, Morris Dan uh, Dancing Around the Maypole and they banned Christmas, they cancelled Christmas. And look, here they are. They're threatening to cancel Christmas again unless, we're, unless we really behave ourselves. It's like we're naughty children. And I mean, my kids are both at university. Uh, I've got two at university and well, one grown up in Hong Kong. And the ones at university... If, if ever they were going to vote Tory at any time in their lives, they're certainly not going to do so now because the government is treating them like miscreants. And where's it going to end? I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's truly, it, it's psychosis. So, I mean, funny enough, the Belarus president gave an address back in March and he basically said all this in advance to a packed room with no masks of all his people in the gymnasium, I think. And he basically said that all of this is going to happen. He said for some governments, it'll be to get the yellow jackets off the streets. For others, it will be to profit. 
Uh, for others, it will be other drivers. But he said, this is basically like a bad flu. I've looked at the data. We're not going to be doing anything. And he called it Corona psychosis. Now, I know people give out about him and, oh, Belarus, and he's a dictator. At the end of the day, he called it correctly. You know, you can't argue with that. Where is it going? I don't know. I suppose when a magic sauce vaccine that was developed in months rather than five or six years, and they've never succeeded in a coronavirus vaccine over 20 years because of the technical nature of it, and the influenza vaccines anyway can be 20 to 30% effective. Uh, you know, so this magic vaccine, even if it's got good efficacy, it'll come for last year's virus, right? And it's not going to make any difference. It's going to cost an absolute fortune for next to nothing. But I think for them, it'll be an exit. Oh, look, we've got you the fix. And you say, but yeah, that's not a... F Shut up. Shut up, it's the fix. Now you can take off your silly mask. You know, now you can, t now you can stop all the silly stuff because you got the placebo. I, I don't know. Is that it? I, 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 I think you're right. I mean, I, I think they are now so... They've set the trajectory where the only answer can be for the vaccine to arrive. But I mean, it may not arrive for a while. It may not arrive for no. years. I mean, I'm not going to take but, it. Are you? Well, no. And the point is, I've taken vaccines uh, going. I'm clearly 100% history of no anti-vax. So screw you, everyone who wants to attack me. And I make the point a couple of years ago, I went to Shenzhen in China. And I had to get vaccines for, I don't know, some Chinese stuff that's going on. I went in, I got them. I didn't even ask what it was for. I just went, it was just a nuisance. I just went to the doctor and she, the doctor did the vaccine. I didn't even ask what they were for. I didn't care. So there's zero anti-vax, right? But the fact of the matter is, I would never take a flu vaccination. Not because I'm worried about what it could do. I, I just never would. It's Why would I? Because I know the efficacy is so low on average. And I know it's aged people overwhelmingly. And I'd let my immune system do it. It's just the way I am. And the swine flu, when it came out, my wife, she, she actually went and got the kids and herself. And her mother was a nurse. She said, oh, you have to get the swine flu. And she said to me, oh, are you coming down? Are you getting it? And I said, why would I? And she said, oh, swine flu, swine flu. I said, have you seen the data for swine flu? Because I'd actually looked. And I'd seen it was Mexican drug, uh, you know, takers had died. And I just, I just realized there's so few people dying of this per million. What are they talking about? And, you know, that was a scandal. I suddenly remember what I wanted to ask you, because this is quite topical. I read uh, some, some, people are, some people who really should know better have, have, have fallen for this. For example, Mel, Melanie Phillips. I don't know whether, you, whether you've come across her. She's a sort of conservative commentator. She, 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 she should, by rights, have gone the Peter Hitchens path, but she didn't. She's become a like, like, aha, you think Sweden's doing well, but actually, here is the latest news from Sweden. And I see that Anders Tegnell, the guy in charge of Sweden's health policy, he, he kept his nerve for so long, is now wavering. He's now talking about uh, local lockdowns, possibly compulsory masks. Do, have, you, have you read this? I have, and, you know, the headlines go way ahead of the content really i think they've played a very good game and i noticed during the height of it when they were getting abused that he was crediting kind of exaggerating their lockdown emphasizing that oh we're doing loads of lockdown even though they weren't really because a cnn video was done on the 6th of may in the middle of the epidemic and they're going around to hairdressers women getting their hair cut the haircutters right over the old woman's ear, interviewing them, bars, people having drinks. So that was the, but I think they were politic about it. They knew they were getting so abused that maybe they, they overemphasized what was happening. Now I think it might be a way out of it now to move people away from country lockdowns, to talk about like if a, if a local area gets a real hotspot, you know, we'll do something locally, what he said. It might be giving a little ground, maybe. I, I'm just, I'm theorizing. And, all, and also, they've done so incredibly well that maybe there's an element as well of, of just guarding their prize of low, low mortality, low, lowest cases in Europe. 
that maybe they're willing to do belt and braces now because they're on the they're on the perch, you know, on the peak. You know, there could be lots of. But we uh, know the belt and braces don't work. We know that they're an illusion. It's. Yeah, but sometimes you you do things that are a placebo just for appearances. I'm not saying that's what they're doing, but you know, they could be massaging and I, I don't know. I, I, yeah, they know that lockdowns don't work. They know that distancing and hygiene with no masks uh, is the guideline for the last 50 years. And they know that that does the same thing. Why are they talking about lockdowns? Maybe they're trying to repatriate themselves back in with the rest of Europe who went crazy. I, I, I don't uh, that that would be my worry. They're trying to. They don't like being the outlier. They they want to be. You know. They want to be in in, in the normal gang. Um, do you, do you think? Do you think that? Okay. Like looking at my our politicians, and I, I know yours is at least as bad, if not worse. Do you think the politicians? Do they know? Do they know the shit that you that you've, you've explained so well on your podcasts and that and that we know on lockdown skeptics and. I mean, it's not like this information is is hidden in a, a a dark vault that no one can read. It's out there. Yeah, that's a tricky one. Uh, politicians, well, first there's a selection bias. So people who will go into politics will tend to be the opposite of being technical type people, you know, because the talent set is completely the opposite end of the spectrum. So in fairness, politicians are going to be really dense when it comes to anything technical. It's their nature in general. Uh, so I would say that partly due to that and partly due to the propagandizing, most of them kind of believe their own BS now. They've been steeped in it for months. Everyone's saying it. All of their experts have been saying it. Second wave could come and they kind of believe it. And I think there's a few who are smarter and they know it's a very tricky situation. And they know that the tiger horn needs to be upped in volume to cover all of their collective ass. So I think there's a few in the know um, who who kind of get this. Like they see my video and they're going to gonna go, that's embarrassing. But they know it's pretty much true. But they know that the show must go on. There is no way they can countenance acknowledging, well, maybe the winter will be just like excess death and excess ICU like prior winters. Maybe we're through the worst. They can't say that now. And all the overlords in the WHO uh, and the other organizations, they're going to get really angry if any politician says that. If any politician starts saying, looks like it was seasonal, it's kind of past, looks like there's a lot of immunity, maybe we should just monitor the ICUs. And like back in March, if the ICU and mortality rises threateningly, then we'll bring in the magic sauce. But they know they can't say that. You know, so some of them will know we got we got to keep this going at at any cost. Also, they put billions into vaccines and trumped them for months. And that whole thing is just going to collapse like the swine flu vaccine. That'd be a complete debacle if it turns out this winter is like prior ones for excess. Not that different. And the reality was this was a flu like bad in illness that has largely passed. So they'd be conscious of that, too. There's a huge amount of stock and investment in that. It's so t challenging a situation for politicians, isn't it? So let's just go through, uh, without sounding like conspiracy theorists, because I don't think we are, um, the reasons why the politicians are pursuing this agenda. I mean, okay, so there's China, presumably, WA. It would just take me through the, the, the guilty, guilty parties. Yeah, well, luckily, there's no conspiracy, as someone quipped on Twitter recently, when they actually tell you they're doing it. <laughs> you know, the conspiracy is when you say there's stuff going on that's hidden, but you know what's going on. That's a conspiracy. This is just data science, management, policy, strategy, international stuff. No big deal. So if you look at the organizations, rough and tough, the WHO has been very clear. They have driven, you know, Mike Ryan and all the guys have driven fear. And they came out and denied seasonality uh, just when it was becoming obvious that it was seasonal. They came out with an announcement. It's not seasonal. It's going to be here forever. It's going to keep going. So they have been scaremongering nonstop. Uh, that's patently obvious. So why? Well, they are an organization that benefits hugely 
and gets huge power and control and influence when there's an epidemic going on because they are handed the baton. So, of course, there's an enormous self-interest to keep it as max concern as possible. And they have many other drivers too. They're industry-funded pretty heavily in many cases. And there's a lot of commercial interests connected into that, you know, in terms of medications. So there's all that stuff. It's not conspiracy. It's just reality. Um, Then the World Economic Forum, very influential, top influencers, huge funding from all the corporates. And they have come out openly, no conspiracy. Uh, The Great Reset is something that they say this is a huge opportunity for us to get control, tracking, tracing, climate laws, all of this worldwide management and control, that's what they're there for, the World Economic Forum, right? And they've published. The EU um, has a whole wing on vaccines, and they've published a five-year plan up to 21. And on that is vaccination passports, tracking, tracing. So obviously all those strategies, which they're doing with the best will in the world, can enormously benefit from a corona crisis. So I think there's no conspiracy here. It's just big international organizations, often with conflicts, but not always, have all of their raison d'etre, their plans, their strategies to manage the world. And and it's all hugely buoyed up by a corona crisis. So they're going to automatically always bias towards, oh, it's, you know, it, it's a big problem. It's not a passing problem. So you got all that. And then you got the politicians' self-interest, you know, you've got to protect your people. You've got to be seen to protect your people. The people are spooked. You're going to protect the hell out of them. And then you're going to get to like it. And the SAGE committee, as an example, they published that they would use mass media and social media and make people scared so that they'd follow the rules. And they also called out there was a danger with making them scared. They called it out in a different column that people could get over scared and could cause divisiveness you know, and unrest. So they thought this all through in March. Well, that's what's happened. They've propagandized the people so much at this stage in kind of April, May, that the people are actually now demanding that the politicians do more lockdown stuff and shut schools. So there's a self-reinforcing loop here of catastrophic uh, proportions. They've actually created a psychosis, a hysteria, and the hysteria is now driving the politicians to do more. You couldn't make it up. They should never have created hysteria. Sweden proved, you can call them more compliant, but Sweden proved that you tell the people about the risk, you tell them about protecting granny, you know, you make sure you know they know that there's an epidemic and we need to be, you know, responsible. And that's all you do. The people generally do that. In fact, in countries all over Europe, including England, it's clearly shown that if anything, just knowing there was a big problem, people took measures that may have affected the curve and the lockdown and draconian didn't add anything to lowering the curve. So the English people are not all crazy. The Irish are not either. Look at them now. They're all running around hiding under the bed. You don't need to propagandize them. You don't need to. Did you see that that German, uh, there was something on Twitter recently that they found some documents in Germany where the phrases used were even more explicit about how to frighten people. That one of them said that you should, I think it was a leaked government document, that you should dwell on the physical effects of, of, of dying of coronavirus and sort of drowning in your own lungs just to kind of so people. And I, I've noticed this a lot. People, people love dwelling on the physical horrors of, of how unpleasant it is to die of coronavirus. When I mean, it's unpleasant dying of flu, I imagine. I think lots of things that are unpleasant to die of. Absolutely. I mean, you know, pneumonia and flu. And uh, a friend of mine, a pathologist, said years ago in Ireland, it was called the old man's friend. And it was just because the aged and infirm, it would take them away. Uh, but this one is, it is a really bad cough and, 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 and discomfort. But we've got drugs nowadays to take away most of the discomfort. Uh, But you're right. I heard about that report and I've seen it elsewhere as well. Uh, They were talking about long term effects should be used increasingly uh, to spook people. And I predicted that one. Hmm. Long COVID. COVID. Uh, There was no long flu. 
there's no long shingles. All these viral illnesses, most of them, I've been told that by countless doctors, they do often have long-term fatigue and, and effects because of the whole immune system response and over-response. This is kind of normal. And in eight months with 40,000 publications on COVID, there isn't one credible one in eight months. We have millions of people had it, not one credible publication uh, actually uh, calling that out. And because they're all interested in making this appear as hysterical as possible, if there was good data for that, we'd have 50 publications. Trust me, we don't have any. So there are long-term effects, and that happens as well with influenza. I know people just personally who are six weeks fatigued after a bad flu, one that only caused me a sniffle. This is not abnormal, but they are going to milk it. And I predicted this two months ago because when I saw the deaths were going to follow, well, four months ago I knew that, or six months, when they began to fall, and then they began to bring in more measures, and then they're bringing in masks. I said, they're gonna, they're gonna start milking long COVID now because they're still gonna have no deaths and no ICU and they need something. And, and sure enough, that's what happened. Did it, by the way, was it you who coined the phrase uh, case-edemic? I didn't actually, but a, a small person on Twitter, I'm not sure who they were, very few followers. I think I saw it. I'm not 100% sure, and I immediately latched onto it. Yeah, but I popularized, I democratized. You democratized it. Just explain briefly what you mean by casodermic and how it relates to the second, um, the second wave that's going to kill us all. Yeah, so I just actually, before this, I, I interviewed a professor of biology uh, who's all over this like a rash uh, from a Croatian uh, guy. But uh, casodermic, yeah, we clarified the definition. It, it means that you have lots of uh, PCR positives, but relatively very little real impact. So it doesn't really mean anything. In other words, if you magically s took away all the PCR tests, no one would know anything was going on. That's a case-demic. But because you're doing hyper-testing with PCR, and the UK, I think, since August up till now, the graph of their testing, they've gone up 3x and more of testing. Hey, presto. If you test, you'll find coronaviruses in summer, you'll find influenza viruses, you'll find rhinoviruses. But usually we don't hyper-test. So when you hyper-test, you have a case-demic. Nothing's really happening. Like one in a million is dying per day. The ICU is nothing heavy, but you've got cases. The other thing about a case-demic is some people wanted to call it a test-demic or a PCR-demic, which is more accurate but they're calling PCR positives cases, and that is not right. So Gusecki, the, the power behind the throne in Sweden, the epidemiologist, you know, Gusecki, uh, he was Ander, Anders Tegnell's boss. He wrote a book. Yeah, he wrote a book on epidemic management. And one of the pages clearly called out, a case is a hospitalization or significant or severe impacts from a disease state coming from a virus. That's a case. They're calling these cases and, and most of them are asymptomatic. So they're only PCR positives and that finds a fragment of the virus. And it could be from two months ago you had it. You could have been asymptomatic then. It could be a false positive. 1% maybe are false positives and they're getting around 1% prevalence. Most of them can be false positives. They're just PCR tests. So it's not even a case-demic, it's a PCR-demic. And I will say it did happen before. And if you Google Spiegel swine, those two words, you will get the most unbelievable article in Spiegel newspaper in 2010. And they talked about the uh, disgrace of the swine flu. And they explain how basically a case-demic happened. They had rapid PCR tests were available suddenly. You had massive cases, you had hysteria, but the deaths were not that high at all. And then they tried to sustain it with PCR testing. And then they ended up having to dump billions of dollars, uh, Germany especially, many countries, of vaccines in the bin because the thing was gone. But that Spiegel article will explain a good chunk of what we're seeing at the moment it's a 10-page comprehensive article. And I, I just say to your listeners, Spiegel, swine flu, read that article and a lot of this will become clear. Before we go, can you just give me any grounds for hope at all that this lunacy is going to end? Can you, can you see any way it will? 
Yeah, well, in terms of predicting, people are saying, oh, second wave. Uh, I think the best guess from the science is we'll go into the winter and we'll see a reasonably normal excess mortality winter in Europe. That's what the science would say. You can never say never. Maybe something weird will happen. Maybe it'll be a soft winter because many susceptible have passed in the corona spike in, in March, April. Uh, but let's say it's a normal winter. I think as time goes on, an increasing pressure against the lockdowns, which we're seeing, especially in the Telegraph and in other newspapers and in Ireland now in the Irish Times, we're seeing a lot of pushback and a lot more awareness of case-demic and a lot more awareness of immunity from all the publications that have come out. I think there'll be more pushback and their position will become more and more strident looking. And if they don't really get anything but a normal winter, increasingly their position will look precarious. So I'm hoping that the people will rise. A tipping point. Once you get 10% of people to realize something and they're vocal, you can often tip the herd over. And I think we're, we may get near 10% in the next few weeks, hopefully, of the population. And I hope they're vocal. The biggest killer, James, and the most shameful thing of all, the media has been shameful. Doctors and specialists all over the world know a lot of what we're saying. And they can't really speak up because they'll get in trouble. And I think that is just an awful shame. There's 400 doctors in, uh, I think, Belgium the other day came out with letters to the government saying everything we said. Uh, there's 650 in Germany. There's, I think, 700 in some other country. Canada have a big bunch as well who are coming out publicly in groups. We need doctors and specialists in medicine to be standing up and calling this thing. We just do. Yeah, I agree. Um, well... <laughs> I hate this. I, I mean, you, you, you've got to laugh because otherwise you'd want to kill yourself, wouldn't you? I just, I never expected. You know, oh, sorry, no, James, I was going to say, you know what? I really let myself go here because it's you and usually it's like a podcast talking about all the issues, but I knew there was a more bubbly element to this. So I actually found myself really letting go. So my normal audience will look at this and say, oh, has I ever been drinking? But it's been great to let it out. Oh, good. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad about that, actually, because, no, just podcasts. I, 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 don't, I don't look at many other, other, other podcasts. And um, I, I was watching uh, Joe Rogan the other day for the first time, and he's much more sort of even than me, isn't he? He's just kind of, he's, he's more neutral. I tend to... <laughs> Try and work up my my guess into a, a to a pitch of <laughs> of something or other. <laughs> no, it's great actually, and it makes it makes a change. Yeah, Joe Rogan is all measured and makes the occasional funny joke, and then he's back to deadpan. But you know, yeah, there has to be a difference. Most podcasts are just a serious conversation. So I love the way at the start you made multiple jokes. It lightened it up. It was it was it was actually energizing. Oh, and then good. I found I just kind of followed that. Oh, well, good. I, um, I, I'm done doing something right because uh, I think my <laughs> my wife and kids think I'm just fucking wasting my time. <laughs> yeah, it'd be nice if I could make it work. Anyway, it's really it's been really great to have you on on the show. Um, oh, anyone uh, enjoying this, please remember to support me on on Patreon and subscribe star and then you'll get more guests like like Ivor. Do you do do you do those by the way for yours? Is that how you make your living? I, yeah, I put at the end of each podcast, I only, I was working for a heart disease charity for many years, uh, you know, and uh, getting, stopping heart disease basically. And I ended my contract. So I was kind of left, do I go back towards corporate work, contract work, or keep going with this mission? I, so I went Patreon as well and a PayPal monthly or one-off, which was strongly suggested. Some people don't really like Patreon. So you give them a PayPal monthly or, or one-off option. And it's worked out quite well. It's replaced a good chunk of my salary and, and it's allowing me with other projects to keep going. So I mean, is, this your, is this your main source of income, this and your books or, or what? Yeah, the books, can, books don't make much money, as you, you may be aware, but you, know, uh, you get a dollar. Uh, is it even worth writing a book anymore? I, I, I wonder about this. It, 
it's it's a rite of passage that you know in the in the movement i was in with all the lecturing it, you kind of have to have a book but once you do it you've done it there's no point doing books for money but you know you have your book out and you refer people to it and it puts together all we have 350 scientific references in it we have recipes we have all the science it was just a huge work active work that had to be done so it's out there but it doesn't make much money so but if you add in patreon and paypal and then i can always turn on a tap of contract work so i'm working with people in the states on heart disease reversal um and i'm working with new zealand a good buddy of mine from a year ago who does nutraceuticals um so i've been working with him on new products so like i i've got multiple projects uh, but i always have to prioritize at the moment i'm prioritizing corona because of a, a a public need actually what's a big story on that it's, it's quite topical it, it is quite topical yeah yeah and, and you know i thought why not talk about it but no uh, in fairness no you people need to be as we said getting the data out uh, because the world is going in sinister route so i'm putting a lot of time in that but luckily the patreon guys i have new guys come in because of rona because i was keto and low carb so probably a lot of people are coming in supporting me because they're seeing me uh, delivering a crucial function but you know it it's just i'm a self-employed kind of out there guy now and i was a corporate manager and technical um you know master for 30 years and it, now the last couple of years i'm kind of out there so it's good in a way midlife reset yeah that's good i uh, but not but not the great reset we don't want one of those at all no no <laughs> I, good hey last thing mm. just one quick uh, that's yes. it. My daughter's a medical student and um, she obviously gets all of this. I've been, she's been asking me every day for the last couple of months, what's the latest? But I explained to her about the Great Reset and about the drivers behind this. And um, I kind of explained it. It's not a conspiracy theory. I said, think of like Singapore. I worked in Singapore a lot and they have a managed society that's kind of like a benign dictatorship. And everyone's kind of tracked and traced. You, know, you probably know how Singapore is. But they still get to go and do their sports and have their fun and work. But you don't step out of line. I said, the World Economic Forum and all these other organizations, they want something like a, a kind of a Singapore for the world. And uh, she said, it sounds like they want a fucking ant farm. <laughs> she didn't like the idea of that. <laughs> you've just... you've. Your daughter has just explained in the best possible way what the Great, great Reset is. It's like, there's, like in London Zoo. Have you been to London Zoo recently? But they've got rid of all the animals. I mean, all the lions and tigers are pretty much anything big, anything you'd want to see they've got rid of because, you know, because it's, it's, it's cruel or keeping them in cages or something. Mm -hmm. But they've got a fantastic um, leaf ants. <laughs> their leaf ant collection is on you know the, the, the you see these ants crawling along these ropes carrying their leaves and doing their ant shit they've they've got a great ant farm i i bet you they've all got their health passports as well if they want to go to other colonies best the best health <laughs> health passports um let, let's do another podcast soon i hope um it's been great having you on the show thank you very much Thank you, James. I'm, I'm all fired up now for the evening. You've energized me. Thanks a lot. Anytime. Thank you, mate. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.